In the last episode, I addressed the common concern that deep intellectual engagement leads to doubt in a crisis of faith. And here I want to consider a second um, concern often raised by well-meaning Christians. It's sometimes claimed that a focus on the intellectual side of the faith will result in intellectualism. By intellectualism here, I mean a kind of emotionless, affectionless, or dispassionate pursuit of knowledge. There's a worry that too much of a focus on the mind can produce a dryness of soul and a passionless faith. Moreover, some maintain that the pursuit of knowledge distracts believers from what is really important, namely personal devotion. Now, these are, are valid concerns that we should take seriously. We certainly don't want our intellectual pursuit to devolve into a kind of stale intellectualism. Happily, though, a life of intellectual engagement doesn't have to lead to intellectualism and can instead lead to a deeper devotion and a more profound religious experience. And this brings us to the final and the greatest benefit that comes from pursuing a life of the mind for Christ. Elevate your worship. When you think about it, the way that God speaks to us as humans in Scripture is analogous to the way that adults speak to babies. When I talk to my nieces, who are right now babies, it's a pretty humiliating scene. I, I physically get down to their level, and sometimes on my knees, and I get in their faces, and I alter the inflection and even the tone of my voice. And then I produce sounds. Some of these sounds consist in simple words. And sometimes the sounds I make are just noises. And if you want to connect with a baby uh, through communication, you have to try to speak at the baby's level. And there's a sense in which God is doing something like this when he communicates to us in the Bible. He stoops to speak to us, as it were. He accommodates the communication of himself to our level in a way that our feeble minds can understand. This is what John Calvin means when he says that God lisps when he talks to us. He writes, quote, For who even of slight intelligence does not understand that, as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in measure to lisp in speaking to us, end quote. It's hard to really appreciate the kind of accommodation that's being made here by God. The difference between uh, a human adult and a human child is just a matter of finite degree. A child is, is simply at an earlier level of development than an adult. They are beings on the same ontological continuum, just at different locations on that continuum. But the difference between a human adult and God is not like this at all. God is not just uh, greater than we are by degree. He's not merely further along on the ontological continuum. He is wholly other than we are. And one way to say this is that the difference between God and man is infinite. And because this difference is infinite, it's incommensurable. It's a difference that cannot possibly be measured or traversed. Calvin continues, quote, such forms of speaking do not so much express clearly what God is like as accommodate the knowledge of him to our slight capacity. 
To do this, he must descend far beneath his loftiness, end quote. The infinite being of God can't be compared to any finite being. No creature can represent God as he is in himself. No mind can comprehend him. No language can capture his essence. Everything that we can say or think about God must always fail to represent him as he truly is. When God speaks to us, he speaks at our level and in a way that we can understand. And it follows from this that what he says about himself in Scripture, although true as far as it goes, cannot possibly tell us what he is like in himself. And this is not a shortcoming of Scripture. No language can communicate the nature of God as he is in himself. There are no words that can possibly describe the infinite being of God. God's communication to us is therefore limited, both by the fact that there is no language that could convey the fullness of his being, and by the fact that our feeble minds can never comprehend his infinite nature. So, he speaks to us in ways that we can understand, in ways that describe something of his nature to us uh, that, sh that falls short of his actual being. And this is why the Bible is full of metaphors, which depict God as being like various creaturely beings. God is said to be a rock. He's said to be a lion. He's said to be a strong tower. Scripture is also full of anthropomorphism, or the depiction of God in physical human terms. God is said, for example, to walk in the garden. God's said to save by his powerful right arm. And he's depicted as sitting upon a throne in heaven. Now, Scripture also utilizes what are called anthropopathisms, or depictions of God in psychological human terms. Here we see that God is sometimes in Scripture said to become angry, to be jealous, and even to experience regret. Now, someone may wonder, how do we know that these creaturely-like depictions of God are not to be taken literally? How do we know that God does not literally change his mind? or that he does not actually sit on a throne somewhere in heaven. Well, we know this because in addition to these metaphorical and figurative depictions of God in Scripture, there are also direct theological statements made concerning him, statements that occur in the indicative mood. And when we pull together the various theological propositions about God from the Bible, certain attributes of God begin to emerge. We see that God is spiritual, or he's immaterial. We see that he's immutable or changeless, eternal or timeless, omnipotent or all-powerful, omniscient or all-knowing, omnipresent everywhere at once. Now, obviously, God cannot be immaterial and yet literally be sitting on a throne. He cannot be immutable or changeless and yet literally change his mind. It takes careful biblical exegesis guided by the light of reason to navigate these various biblical depictions and to achieve a coherent and consistent portrait of God's nature, as far as we are able to understand it. So God is presented to us in Scripture in many ways and under many different kinds of descriptions, so that the least of us to the greatest of us can come to know something about him. Whether we be children or adults, whether we be ignorant or wise, we can all come to Scripture. We can all learn. The Bible's simple enough to instruct a young child, and yet it's deep enough to captivate the seasoned philosopher. God's Word 
meets us where we are, no matter where we are, and it challenges us to a higher understanding of himself. Now, because God's revelation of himself to us in scripture is so variegated and universal by design, it is possible for our understanding of God to occur at different levels of richness and deepness. For example, consider the kind of knowledge that a typical child has of God. Most children tend to have a very anthropomorphic understanding of God. That is, um, God is a heavenly father, like their own father, except that he is far bigger and he lives in a place called heaven. And this is natural in part because children uh, have an easier time relating to the biblical narratives in scripture, which often depict God in human terms, and they're less able to comprehend those didactic or teaching portions of scripture that contain the theological pronouncements. But as children grow, their view of God typically becomes more sophisticated and less anthropocentric, or at least it should. Unfortunately, many adults never quite grow out of this childish understanding of God. Many believers today in our shallow Western version of Christianity are stuck with a quasi-anthropomorphic notion of God. Now, I'm convinced that most American Christians today think of God in a way that is not all that different from the way that the Greeks thought about Zeus or the Norsemen thought about Odin. God is thought of as a, a divine being with some kind of a spiritual body who dwells in the heavens and occasionally inter intervenes in the goings-on of the earth. Many today think about God as if he were some sort of a super angel or the greatest of the spiritual beings that exist. And it's not just the lay Christian that's subject to this kind of thinking when it comes to the nature of God. There's even some popular level theologians and scholars who have recently suggested ideas that lead to a picture not very much unlike this. They talk about God as if he were the supreme being within a class of beings called the Elohim. They speak about God as if he were just something of a top-ranked angel. And it's understandable why so many think about God primarily in these terms, there's a natural tendency to conceptualize God in a way that is easiest for our minds to grasp. And what's easiest for us to understand is a God who is in some way in our own image. It's easiest for us to think about God as if he were a person like us in many respects, only without a body and immensely more powerful and wise. And I think many of us fall into this simplistic and childish thinking when it comes to God we project ourselves into the heavens, as it were. Now, as we grow in our faith, we should grow in our understanding of the nature of God, and we ought to shed these immature and childish ways of thinking about God. Although the metaphorical, anthropomorphic, anthropopathic depictions of God in Scripture are useful to our finite creaturely minds, we must not make the mistake of thinking that this is the way God is in himself. In fact, I contend that God cannot possibly be like any being of which we can imagine, because every being that we can imagine is a creaturely being. But God is not a creature. God is the creator. Now, theologians and philosophers from antiquity have referred to the Christian distinction between God on the one hand and everything else on the other as the creator-creature distinction. Whatever else we think about God, as Christians, we must confess this much as absolutely foundational. 
that God is the cause of the existence of anything that is not himself. That God is the reason why there is something rather than nothing. Absolutely everything that is not God is made to be by God. Apart from God, there is literally nothing, no thing. God is the source of being and existence. He's the uncaused cause. He's the unmoved mover. He's the purely actual actualizer. He's the necessary foundation for all contingent beings. And unlike every other being that relies for its moment-to-moment -moment existence on God, God himself exists by his own nature. God is not derived from or dependent on anything that's more fundamental than himself. And with so many of the church fathers, I believe that this is precisely what God communicates about himself in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Here Moses asks God what his name is, and God responds by saying, quote, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you, end quote. God declares himself to Moses as the eternally self-existing one. God is the one who is. God is existence itself. This is a profound statement of God's nature that is repeated again by Christ in John chapter 8, verse 58, when he says, quote, before Abraham was, I am, end quote. Christ here identifies himself with the eternally existing one, the I am who appeared to Moses. Now, in philosophical terms, this means that God must be conceived of as the ultimate reality in the order of being and as the ultimate explanation in the order of discovery. As the uncaused cause of existence, God must be the absolute foundation and the final reason for everything that exists. If anything could exist apart from him or operate independent of him, then God could not be the ultimate reality or the ultimate explanation of things. He could not be God. As creator, God is radically other than any creature, no matter how resplendent the creature may be. The difference between creator and creature is, strictly speaking, not to be cast as a difference of finite being versus infinite being, but rather as a difference of being versus non-being. God is not merely the supreme being. He's not merely the top being. He's not merely the greatest being. Conceiving of God in these ways is to conceive him of uh, is to conceive of him as a creature. But God is not a creature. He's not just another being among beings. He is not in fact a being at all, but rather being itself. He's the very ground of all beings. And because God must be the ultimate foundation of reality and the ultimate explanation of everything, we can see why thinking about him in creaturely terms is so flawed. To think of God as the Greeks thought of Zeus or as the Vikings thought of Odin is to think of a supreme being among beings that is nevertheless still a being, a being that is less than ultimate and therefore one that requires a cause of its existence. Likewise, every angel, no matter how powerful, is just another creature who must be caused to be by the Creator. And as the very ground of being, God is far greater than anything that we can think of 
or that we can even talk about. As Anselm rightly stated, God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. Now you may ask, what does this have to do with worship? My answer, absolutely everything. You see, I believe that your capacity for worship is directly related to the quality of your understanding. The deeper your understanding of the nature of God, the deeper your capacity for worship. As we grow in our understanding of who God is, we will grow in our capacity to worship Him. And to show you what I mean, let's briefly consider what I think are the three fundamental elements of worship. Reverence, dependence, and gratitude. To show reverence is to esteem, honor, or venerate. The notion of reverence toward God is often expressed in the Bible as the fear of the Lord. The word fear is probably best understood as being synonymous with words like awe or astonishment or amazement or wonder. To fear the Lord is to be in a state of reverent terror before his greatness in a way that motivates devotion rather than dread. And clearly, I think that growing in our knowledge of God should only increase our reverence for him, since the more accurate our understanding of the true nature of God, the greater that nature will appear to our minds. So the more we can shed the tendency to conceive of God in our own image, the more we can come to know him as utterly transcendent and other, the greater will be our sense of amazement, wonder, and astonishment of his glory. Worship also includes an acknowledgement of dependence. To worship God is to acknowledge him as creator. And to acknowledge God as creator is to acknowledge ourselves as creatures. As creatures, we are radically dependent on God. Now, most of us think about our dependency on God in the context of mundane things in our lives. We know that God is ultimately responsible for the blessings that we enjoy in life, such as health and family and friends and wealth and what have you. But our dependence on God is far deeper than this and far more profound. As we've seen, God causes everything to exist as long as it exists. And if God is the ultimate reality, there can be no shred of existence that is not caused to be by him. Now, this, of course, means that he is right now causing you and I to be. We are, all of us, utterly dependent on God for our moment-to-moment -moment existence. There's nothing that we have, nothing that we do, nothing that we are that is not made to be by God. And I believe the root of all sin in men and angels is idolatry, idol worship. For many of us, the God we worship is ourselves. We commit idolatry whenever we think of ourselves as autonomous beings, self-sufficient, self-governing, self-directed, self-ruling. Many of us live as if our lives belong to us, as, as if we are sovereign over ourselves. But this is just an insidious form of idolatry. We are living as if we were the gods of our own lives. And as with all sin, this kind of idolatry is totally absurd. We are not sovereign over our lives. We did not bring ourselves into being. We do not keep ourselves in being. We do not own our being. We are creatures. When we think deeply about God as the ultimate source and final reason for the existence of everything outside of himself, we begin to understand what it means 
for God to be creator. And when we begin to grasp what it means for God to be creator, we will come to truly appreciate what it means for us to be creatures who are radically dependent on God at every moment of our existence. So when we worship the Lord, we fear or reverence Him, we acknowledge our dependence on Him, and we express our gratitude to Him. Having a heart of gratitude is easy once we truly come to see our creaturely dependence. Think about this. You had absolutely nothing to do with your own coming into being. You did not earn the right to exist, and you did not deserve to exist. Both of these scenarios involve logical contradictions, since you would have to exist before you existed in order to earn or deserve your own existence, which is, of course, absurd. There is one word that describes the reason that you and I exist right now at this very moment, and that word is grace. We are here because of God's gracious will. We have being because in his love, God wills us to be. I think grace is well defined as God's unmerited favor. Every single bit of being that we enjoy is the result of this. Everything that we are, everything that we have is a gift. And to understand this is to understand grace. A grace that is even further expressed to us in the atonement of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And I think that the key to having a thankful heart is to understand this profound nature of grace. The gratitude that comes from grace is resilient and it's steadfast. It's not affected by the changing circumstances of life because it remembers that all of life itself is a gift. So these are profound ways in which our understanding, our minds, are directly and practically related to our Christian devotion and to our worship. So let me say something that um, perhaps you may never have considered before. Worship is essentially related to the intellect, and it's only accidentally related to the emotions. Now this may come as a surprise to some, because our Western American expressions of Christianity tend to involve highly choreographed, music-heavy services designed to elicit emotional response. But it's not hard to see that the mind is fundamental in worship. The mind directs our worship. Without this, our emotional response would be pointless. It would be literally aimless. The mind is also that by which we know the truth about God, truth that is stable, truth that is unchanging, Whereas the emotions, because they're physical, are unstable and subject to change and alteration. Emotions wax and wane. They come and go. But the truth never changes. We see this priority of the intellect in worship in John chapter 4, verse 24, a familiar passage where Jesus is speaking to a woman from Samaria. The woman was overly concerned about the right place or location for worship. She was focused on the physical aspect of worship. And Jesus redirects her from thinking about worship primarily in physical terms to, think about, to thinking about worship primarily in spiritual terms. He tells her, quote, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know 
for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth." End quote. Now, when Jesus says that God is spirit, he, he obviously means that God is immaterial. He's non-physical. And as immaterial, it's foolish to think that location applies to God or the worship of God. So Jesus is saying that the essence of worship is nothing that's related to the physical, whether that be location or ritual or emotion. Rather, Jesus said that worship is all about truth. True worship is fundamentally grounded in the spirit or the soul, reflecting on the truth. Now, of course, I'm not saying that worship shouldn't include the emotions. It certainly, it certainly should include the emotions. We're not just spiritual or intellectual beings like angels, but we are body-soul composites. And therefore, we worship God with all of our beings, with all of ourselves, including those parts that are associated with our physical bodies, such as our affections. The point here is just that the mind is primary and that it takes precedence in worship, and emotions are secondary. For this reason, to dedicate oneself to the life of the mind for Christ is to dedicate oneself to a life of ever-deepening worship. The more we come to know God as He truly is, as the ground of all being, as the ultimate reality, as the final explanation, as unlimited and unbounded existence, as the creator of everything that is not himself, our sense of reverence, dependence, and gratitude will only become more profound. The greatest payoff from the life of the mind for Christ is the elevation of your worship. Now, some say that thinking of God in this way, as the ultimate reality, as the ground of all existence, as being itself, is to think of him as being too remote from us, too transcendent, to other. Some complain that this makes God seem distant and detached from his creation in a way that discourages rather than encourages worship. But this is a confusion. It is precisely God's radical transcendence as creator that makes possible his radical imminence, a radical closeness to us. God is not just another being in the universe that we can relate to as we do with other beings in the universe. As the ground and source of being itself, God is able to be nearer to us than any other creature ever could hope to be. Thomas Aquinas explains why. He writes, quote, Since God is existence itself through his essence, created existence must be his proper effect. And God causes this effect in things, not only when they first begin to exist, but also for as long as they are conserved in existence, just as the sun causes light in the air for as long as the air remains illuminated. Therefore, for as long as a thing has existence, God must be present to it in a way befitting the existence it has. But existence is that which is most intimate to any given thing, and that which is, in all things, most deeply. Hence, it must be the case that God exists within all things, and intimately so." End quote. 
Classical theists have long believed that contemplation on the radical transcendence and radical imminence of God is the surest way to prepare the heart for worship. Here on the earth, we must settle for what our feeble minds can know. But one day, our minds will be lifted to understand God as he is in himself. And our response will be to worship him forever.